Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. While the choir is taking their place, let me talk to you for just a moment about where we are and where we're going. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the need for giving a defense of what we believe. And the basis of that, remember, was that the scripture encourages us at any time to be ready to give a reasoned argument, to give a defense, an apologetic. When anyone asks us at any time to be instant and to be ready to do what? To give evidence for the hope that is in us. And the hope that is in us is Jesus Christ. And last week we began then by answering the question, where is your God? By saying he is the never-ending isness. He was, he is, and he is to come eternally. He is. Before we look at how we frame that as Christians within a theistic worldview of God being supernatural next week. Today, I think it's important for us to deal with the burning question that society asks today. In a postmodern world, whatever that is, in a relativistic world, the question is, what is truth? And that's important for us to deal with now before we talk about what we believe because they may not even be asking those questions. They're really asking the question, how can you be certain about truth? And I want to talk a little bit about that today. You know, when Jesus was before Pilate in John, the 18th chapter, I'd like for us to take a look at that passage for a moment. We think that this is the not modern question, but the postmodern question that society has raised anew. Well, no, it is a renewed question. Because we see in John, the 18th chapter, in verse number 33, that Pilate and Jesus come together. And this question is asked by Pilate. You know it, if you remember the account from the Gospel of John. Beginning in the 33rd verse, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, Well, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me, and what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, you see, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to you to the Jews. But as it is, My kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this, and he points to the future now, not about his kingship, but he says, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. And what is that this? to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asks the question, 
what is truth. You know, the world and its fancy philosophies of the 21st century thinks it's come up with a new question. That question is as old as the Garden of Eden. Because really, what was it that Adam challenged and questioned God about? It was about eating of the tree of life? No. It was about eating from the tree of what? Knowledge. Not just knowledge, but the knowledge of good and evil. You see, he was challenging God about the truth and knowledge. In ancient times and cultures, truth was defined by authoritarian structures. Truth was defined by the king, by the priest, and by philosophers. Just go back and look at 4th and 5th century Greece. In medieval times that followed that, truth was defined by the king again, and not by the priest, but by the church, and by theologians and their scholastic theology. So how does our culture today then define that truth? Coming out of the Middle Ages, I want to take a moment to take a historical look, and I think it's important for us to do that this morning, to see how we got to where we are today. How do we come to a point in the 21st century with all of our technology and our science and our medicine and all of our knowledge and all of the information that barrages us on the internet, how is it then that people ask the question, what is truth? Well, it began with the emergence of modernity, with what is modern. So what is modern? Because to understand what post-modernity is, you need to understand what modernity is. Modernity, I think, emerges out of the Renaissance, and one of the key ingredients was humanism. We think of humanism today as a negative term, but in fact, in the Renaissance, it wasn't. It simply meant this. Coming out of that structure of medieval culture, when authority was set by the king and the church, and by authoritarian structures above people, by the theologians in the universities, people began to ask this question, doesn't the individual have value? Doesn't the individual human have value? And isn't that person able to think for himself or herself? And that's not a bad thing. The other part of modernity emerging out of that period was the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, where there was an emphasis on reason and science. Reason, they said, is the human intellectual power that enables us to develop a systematic knowledge of nature and to learn all about nature and to become an authoritative guide for life. Reason, you see, is our guide. Science and math emerged mainly amongst the philosophers, and it said that we can give evidence-based knowledge that helps us to gain mastery over the mechanics of the universe, Newtonian physics, and it frees us, you see, from ancient myths and superstitions that are not true. And there were four assumptions as we move into the modern period about the way we think and the way we gain mastery over the universe. And that is that knowledge is rational. There is a factual body of information that is objective that we can discover with the mind. So knowledge is reasonable. Secondly, knowledge is objective. You see, there's a definitive body of truth that we can somehow learn to help us gain mastery of the universe. Knowledge is certain. You see, we can depend on the discoveries through the telescope and through the chemistry lab and have absolute confidence about gaining mastery over the universe. And knowledge is good. You see, all knowledge, then, therefore, if it's good, must lead to what? Progress. 
And so this, left, this, this led to a positive attitude in the modern period, optimistic that we have hope that through all of this reason and science and math, we can progress for this purpose, to benefit humanity. But there was also a negative side to it. You see, it raised skeptical questions about religion, and it became very critical of any political authority over the individual. Hence, the French Revolution. The goal of modernity was the human quest to master the universe, to unlock its secrets, and rationally to manage and improve everyday life through technology. There were some problems with modernity, though, especially if you look at it from a scriptural standpoint and from a religious standpoint. You see, ultimately, it put confidence in what? In the human mind and human knowledge and ingenuity, and it led to what we know today as not just humanism, but secular humanism. Reason and science were supreme. There was little room then for intuition. There was little room for mystery, especially the mystery of godliness. And many in that modern period rejected God as the ultimate author of truth and knowledge and certainly rejected biblical revelation as a foundation of truth. So there were some things about modernity which did not fit scripture, and there were some things that needed to be corrected. There is a corrective that has come in the late 19th and the 20th and 21st century, and it is called postmodernity. So what is it? To understand it, you go back to the 19th century and you look at what the philosophers were beginning to say about certainty, reality, and knowledge. With some of the early philosophers like Kant, he was skeptical about whether or not we can even know things. I know you. You know me. But you don't really know me because you're not who I am. That's what he was saying. You cannot know an object outside yourself truly unless you become that object. It raises questions then, skeptical questions about the knowledge of things outside of who you are. Hegel and Marx then raised this issue about tension. We call it the dialectic, but it's a, it's a complicated word for simply tension. There's tension in history. There's tension all around us between the thesis and the antithesis that produces a synthesis. So things you see are changing. They're in tension. There aren't absolutes. Darwin then came along and, of course, told us that everything is always morphing biologically, but Darwin's thought of evolution also affected every realm of science and thinking in the 19th to 20th, 20th century. We'll get to that later in another sermon. Nietzsche then raised questions about whether we can be certain at all. Can I know who I am? Because who I am, you see, is socially constructed by how I relate to society. Nietzsche was a nihilist. He was negative and pessimistic. He said, we don't even know if we can distinguish between what is real and ideal. There's no such thing as objective history. It's only our opinion about what's happened in the past. So you put all of this together. You see, philosophers in the 19th century were raising questions about certainty at the very fundamental levels of life. You see, post-modernity is rooted actually back in the late stages of modernity. And then along came World War I. And afterward, not optimism, but pessimism about human progress. And in the 1930s, art and literature and language began to turn another direction, began to ask questions about what we read. Simply because something is read and it's a text, does that mean that that's what it means? Or might it mean what you think it means when you read it? Meaning changes with every reader. Words have different meanings depending on the culture that you're in. 
depending on the language that you use. And it led in biblical terms and theology to many people say, well, the Bible is what you want it to say when you read it, the reader response, hermeneutic. And then along in the 1960s came philosophers, many of them French philosophers, that began to look at the structures of life, anthropology, history, politics, science. And they said, those structures don't exist as objective structures. They are simply what we perceive them to be. And they began to destructure or deconstruct them. And they said this, you see, there is no objective knowledge out there. It's just the way we perceive it. It's the way we structure it. There's no grand structure in life. There's no such thing as knowledge. There's no such thing, and if you listen to Joel's blurb last week to advertise what we're talking about today, he used the term meta-narrative. You see, there's not a grand narrative that stretches over all of reality. There's not an ultimate reason and purpose for being that defines reality. Now, you combine that way of thinking with what happened in physics. Einstein comes along and he has his two theories of what? His general and his special theories of what? Relativity. Quantum physics then tells us that at the very subatomic level, you cannot be absolutely certain about things. You cannot measure the movement and at the same time the, the position of an electron. It raises questions about the very fundamental structures of life in physics, and it leads Werner Heisenberg with, to come up with his principle of uncertainty, that at the most fundamental level in life, there is nothing but paradox and probability. Look at information technology today. Information is what? Information is fragmented, it's, de it's segmented, it's information is a com combination of binary zeros and ones, you see, it's fragmented. And in society, society has been fragmented. All of the great empires of the past, and I'm not necessarily saying that that was good, but all of the empires have fragmented. You look at cultures, nationalism has declined. It's more about being a part of a special group, about being part of a an intimate culture. And you put all this together and it leads to this conclusion that is the hallmark of postmodernity. Everything, all, is difference. All is changing. There's no objective universe. Everything's in a state of flux. There's no center. We all have different perspectives about it. You see, truth, you know, the typical way that it's described is that postmodernists say there is no truth. That's, that's really a simplistic way of putting it. Actually, what they say is, we can't discover truth. It cannot be discovered. We simply interpret what we see. It can't be established by rational assertions. Knowledge is not inherently good. Knowledge is not objective. It's subjective. It's a matter of interpretation. It's a result of our taking all this information that we're barraged with and constructing what we think reality is. Reason is not necessarily the only path to knowledge. You look around at the millennials and the young millennials that have been so influenced by post-modernity, and there's more emphasis instead of on reason, intuition. How much have you read recently about what is your emotional IQ? It's about feeling and about relational connections. There is a communal emphasis in our society today in post-modernity. 
You see, there is no autonomous expert out there that, that has a market on what is true knowledge. No, it's about community. It's about socially structuring the way we view reality, and this leads to a pluralistic environment, a pluralistic setting. There are many groups that coexist that not only believe differently, but those, those groups believe that they have the truth, maybe. This is our truth. This is your truth. This is my truth. And for two generations in our universities, our professors have been telling our students, our young people, there is no truth. It's what you believe it is. You see, truth is what you construct it to be. And you can see the implications for religion and for Christianity. When you begin to witness to somebody about Christ, they say, well, that's fine for you. But that's not for me. That might be true for you, but it's not true for me. You see, post-modernity and its relativism proclaims to be very tolerant. It tolerates all perspectives because nobody has the absolute truth. It tolerates all perspectives except one, just as in the days of Rome. Christians were persecuted and Jews were persecuted because Rome was very eclectic. It was syncretic. You can believe whatever you want to as long as you don't say that your truth is the only truth. And for that reason, Christians were put to death. Well, you see, we live in a not unlike time today. Postmodernity and relativism tolerates every perspective except the one that says we claim to have exclusive truth. The practical results of, the, of these things are relativism. There's no universally accepted truth. It's either truth doesn't exist or you simply can't know it. There are different ways, you see, of determining truth. Some people say, my truth I determine by what? Does it work? Utilitarianism. If it works, it must be true. Some people say, well, if it feels good, then it must be true. If, if, if it helps me, this is, of course, hedonism. Or it may be whatever the majority holds. That's a social construction of truth. Or, you know, I really, really, really believe this. I'm sincere about it, so it must be true. All of these are subjective perspectives about what the truth is. And it leads to what? A world of uncertainty about reality. Our young people out there have no moorings unless they are raised in a culture where they are taught that there is absoluteness about truth. They have no firm understanding of reality. And in fact, there is a pessimism that has descended upon the millennial generation. The suicide rate is skyrocketing. You see, because there is no progress. It's just an extension of the attitude that came out of World War I. There's an opposition to power. It is skeptical about any kind of institution that says we have the authority to speak with truth. And that has to do especially with traditional religious views. It challenges traditional moral views and finds them to be oppressive. Oh, if you proclaim that as a moral truth and it's exclusively true, and these people over here don't practice that, you see it's oppressive. It becomes hate speech. Pluralism is the hallmark of the postmodern society. It is its cultural expression. Many groups coexist, and that is a fact, but many groups coexist, and it is perfectly fine for them to have competing truth systems, and, and, and that's okay too, except for this. Then they say, because everybody who believes they have the truth, it is true for them, and it's right. 
So, so much for history. What does the Bible say? What's the biblical response? You see, this isn't something that began yesterday. The Bible has been addressing this ever since the Old Covenant. What is truth in the Old Testament? The word is emeth in Hebrew, and it means certainty. It means stability and firmness, constancy. It means divine instruction. It's truth in the Old Testament is the reliable testimony, revelation, knowledge, principles, and factual accounts that come from God or have been communicated by God through his emissaries, his prophets. That is truth. It comes through his word, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. Evidence that God's word is true we will cover later in a later sermon in more detail. But this morning, the scripture is filled with truth that is trustworthy. Creation. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about the cosmos and the design of the cosmos and how we have scientific evidence that scripture in Genesis, when it says that God created the cosmos, he created the heavens and the earth from nothing, from Barak, we have evidence of that. It's truth. Its commandments are true. When you look at the punishments that were proclaimed in, in Deuteronomy 28, that were going to descend upon Israel if they disobeyed the commandments and the laws, every one of those punishments that was prophesied was fulfilled. It's true. The fulfillment of prophecies in Scripture is accurate. Judgment is pronounced on 25 nations in the Old Testament through the prophets, mainly the prophets, and each one of those judgments was fulfilled in history. 191 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament we all see fulfilled in the New Covenant. The historicity of the Bible is valid. It is true. There have been over 25,000 discoveries, archaeological discoveries in Palestine, and not a single one of them has disproved a single biblical fact. In fact, most of them confirm what the Bible says in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is truth. The Old Covenant dealt with relativism, the hallmark, one of the other hallmarks of postmodernity. In the time of the judges, you can quote it, there was no king, and everyone did as they saw right in their what? Own eyes. Fallen human nature, the Bible says, is relativistic. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is what? It is death. The results of all of this, it's a turning upside down of everything. When we abandon the absolute values of truth, what happens? Isaiah tells us, woe to those who call evil good. Are there people doing that today? You better believe it. And when they call good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit frustrating because at one time you really agree with what he's saying and at other times you disagree with what he's saying. Sometimes he sounds like he's speaking on behalf of God and sometimes he sounds like he's speaking on behalf of man. And the reason for that is that's what's happening. You see, Koheleth, Ecclesiastes, from which we quoted before we started the worship service this morning, is really a commentary on post-modernity. You see, what you find in there is Solomon, after he has written Proverbs and all about wisdom and godly wisdom, then he talks about what happens when you don't have it. 
He exposes the uncertainty and contradictions and pessimism of secularism without God. And he summarizes it then when he comes to the very end. He says, this is the conclusion then. When all is said and done, when everything is heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, to light, whether it is good or evil. The old covenant understood postmodernity and relativism. The new covenant, what is God's truth in the New Testament? The word aletheia means to be unhidden, not to hide. It means to be revealed. It's an accurate de- description or uh, a picture of reality. In other words, truth is revealed. And in the New Testament, it is revealed not just in concepts, not just in laws and commandments, not just in principles, but it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just a concept. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to relativism today. Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to those in postmodernity who say there is no truth. You see, truth isn't knowledge. Truth isn't information. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. He embodies the truth. He reflects the Father's character. And we beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father, who came, what? Full of grace and truth. He's the personification of the truth. The choir sang about that this morning. I am the way, the truth, the life. And Jesus' purpose, He has described to Pilate. That was his purpose. He came not only to be the truth, but to reveal the truth. For this I was born. Now, not, not for you to debate about whether I'm a king or not. We'll deal with that later. Jesus doesn't deal with that at that point. He knows that's going to be dealt with later. Was he king? Yes. But not just of the Jews. He was king of all creation. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he rules all over, over all creation. But he didn't deal with that at that moment. He says, no, what, you see, it is for this purpose that I came. And I came for what reason? That I would testify to the truth. And everyone who hears the truth hears my voice. And he accomplished that purpose. In John 1, we have that observed by, by John as he wrote the prologue. He accomplished that. He he came and he gave more than just concepts. He gave more than just the law. He fulfilled it. And it says what? For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He gave a full understanding of that truth, of what God's truth really was. In John 17, he says, For the words which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, and they have received it, and they have truly understood. So he not only embodied the truth, he communicated the truth, and he helped them understand it fully, and everything that he spoke was the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, what does that word verily mean? What is it in Greek? What is it in Hebrew? What is it in English? What is it in Latin? Amen, 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 amen. And God's people said, when you say that, what do you mean? So be it. The Hebrew word means it is so. 64 times as he spoke in the New Testament, on 64 different occasions, he introduces what he is saying by 
this is the truth, this is the truth. Jesus provides the remedy to the problem of relativism in John 8, which was also sung this morning. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the what? The truth. And the truth will do what? It will set you free. You see, we can know with certainty and confidence that his words are true. He tells a parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember it about the foundations. And he says what? You see there are a couple of men building houses. If you're like the man who hears my words, or the woman that hears my words and acts upon them and is obedient to them, you are like a man who builds his house upon wood, snow, no upon what? Rock. But those who do not are like those who build their house on shifting sands. People who build their life upon the foundation of relativism and say there is no truth are not only on shifting sands, they are sinking in quicksand. He is the rock. He is the truth. And he sets us free, the scripture says. Free with a word of salvation that frees us from sin and death. He gives us a word of wisdom that clarifies the boundaries between truth and deception. Because you see, that is the, that's the alternative. You either have the truth of God or you have the deception of Satan. He draws very clear boundaries that define the difference. And if we don't know the difference, folks, as many in this generation and the one before it and the one before it, back to the Garden of Eden, that are unmoored and uncertain are fearful about what they don't know. They're fearful about the unknown danger because they do not have the boundaries. I believe that our millennials and Gen Zs are desperately searching for something they have not been given, and that is certainty. Now, where you see it happening is after they get through their 20s and into their 30s, and they start having families, and they start raising kids. And then they begin to ask the questions about certainty. We can be free. We can be free and not victims of simple group thing, think. Victims of herd mentality. You see, truth is not socially constructed. And Jesus makes us free in this way. He's not coercive. He comes embodying the truth. He comes telling the truth. He comes explaining the truth. And then what does he do? You see, I've come to teach you. He tells the Jews that have come to his side. And he says, you know, if you don't believe me that I come not on my own accord, but I come on the Father's accord, you see, I, I say the things that he tells me. I get my truth from him. He is my bedrock. And if you think that I am just saying these things because I'm a philosopher, then do this. When the world does not know whether or not they can trust Jesus, he gives them this invitation. If anyone wills, chooses to do his will, then that person shall know concerning my teaching. You see, whether it is from God or whether I speak only on my own authority. You see, even Jesus Christ based his understanding of truth that he embodied on the word that came from the Father. And that's an invitation today. If you're watching today and you're not sure whether you can trust Jesus Christ, is he a son of God and the son of man? I would invite you to do what he says. Choose to do his will, and then what will happen is he will reveal to you very clearly. 
in very obvious ways that what you're doing based on his word comes from God and from no one else. He also gives the spirit. Jesus not only is the truth, but he gives the spirit of truth to the Father. And he says this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is a very, very unmodern statement. He doesn't say he's going to give you reason to figure things out, although he does help improve our mind, and we are to do that. But this is a postmodernist statement. It is the Spirit that will bring us to truth. It's intuitive. It's relational. This is what postmodernity is yearning for, is to fill that void in community. It is the Father who has sent the Son, and in the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, and in Trinitarian fellowship they draw you through the Spirit to them. It is community because every believer in Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church comes together and the church reads the Word of God. And the church then discerns from the Word of God and the church together collectively then disciple and help us to understand what the truth is in community. That is not socially constructed. That is biblically constructed in the family of God. Relativism existed in the New Testament days too. There were the Sadducees that would accommodate anything that they could that was not explicitly in the Torah. There were the Herodians that were swayed by power politics and conspired with the Pharisees to kill Jesus. There were relativistic groups then. And the scripture warns this. Some, someday, will turn away from the truth. Paul warns Timothy They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He tells the Colossians, don't be deceived by this kind of relativism. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's a spiritual battle, he says, And not according to Christ. So that's what the Bible says about postmodernity and relative. No, that's what the Bible says about what? About truth. Let me close with this. Well, what is the case of postmodernity and relativism? Where do we stand as the church next to that? Number one, very clearly, there are contradictions in postmodernity and relativism. Joel alluded to this in his blurb the other day. You see, postmoderns that are relativistic say this, there is no absolute truth. And when they do that, they have made a what kind of statement? An absolute statement. It is self-contradictory. And today, friends, science and math defy relativism. Most laws of physics remain constant despite Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty. Gravity still exists. If you get up on the 13th floor of a building and jump off, you're not going to float up. We still live in a three-dimensional universe. I know the fourth dimension is time. I know that someday we may discover the 17th and 18th dimensions, but I believe that's when we get to heaven. Right now, we live in a three-dimensional universe. Ohm's law of electrical currents is still applicable. Newton's three laws of motions still are valid. Boyle's law of gas and pressure is still true. Pascal's law of hydraulic pressure is still valid. Kepler's law of planetary orbits is still accurate. The three laws of thermodynamics still govern much of the universe. Mathematics still apply. 
simple laws, Pythagorean's theorem, the quadratic formula, the value of pi, has been, is, and always will, will tell us the ratio, the ratio between the circumference and di diameter of a circle. The laws of mathematics and the laws of multiplication, the, the commutative and associative and distributive laws of mathematics still apply. And folks, some would say, well, what you've just described is all about math and science. What we're really talking about is morality. Don't tell me how to live my life because you have some absolute standards, folks. It is still wrong to commit murder. It is still wrong to steal and to lie. It is still wrong to commit adultery. It is sinful. It is still wrong to be greedy and avaricious and covetous. And most societies have incorporated those things into their what? Into their laws. You see, there are toxic effects of relativism. Three things very quickly and then I'll close. Number one, relativism in postmodernity restricts freedom. They say that they support a free speech and a free society. But in fact, they oppose anyone and dismiss them as irrelevant who teach anyone who teaches absolute truth. What does this do? It restricts freedom of discourse in the public square. Cancel culture. Secondly, relativism is intolerant. They label intolerant anyone who holds absolute values. That's hate speech when you say that this moral behavior is wrong and somebody else believes it's right. When they try to silence those who speak with absolute values, they themselves are intolerant. Finally, relativism is judgmental and it's polarizing. At the individual level, Joel said this last week, I believe what I believe is right and you believe what you believe is right, but guess who's right? I'm right, you're wrong. And I judge what you believe is being wrong because I know it's right. At a societal level, it leads to cancel culture. A culture in which when people try to stand up and speak the truth, they are told to sit down and shut up. You're irrelevant. You see, this is polarizing. What it does is it divides society instead of unifying society. It balkanizes us and it creates culture wars. And if we live in a nation today that is involved in culture wars, it's America. Powerful interest groups that reconstruct the truth to fit their own purposes. That fabricate the truth so that they can have their way. And folks, fake news applies on both sides of the political spectrum. We have forgotten what e pluribus unum means. Hmm. We emphasize the pluribus, but not the unum. We live in an uncivil society because of the culture wars that are a product of relativism. Instead of wanting to be united, and yes, coexist, but be respectful of one another and have the right then to persuade others that there is absolute truth. So how do we as a church then respond? Number one, there's some theologians that have compromised. They say we can reinterpret the scriptural text to accommodate culture. There are some that have traded sound theology for only spiritual experience, although I believe that we have a spiritual experience. They have traded sound theology for feeling and relationship. I believe in feeling and relationship, but we must be rooted and grounded in a biblical theology. Others obscure theology. They try to be all things to all people. 
This is not what Paul meant when he said being all things to all people. It was not accommodating to culture so that people don't know who you are and what you stand for. In his book on generous orthodoxy, I like a lot of what Brian McLaren says. But when you look at the title, this depicts where a lot of theologians are. This is the subtitle of his book. Why I am a missional, evangelical, post-Protestant, liberal conservative, get that, mystical, poetic, biblical, charismatic, contemplative, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, green, incarnational, depressed, yet hopeful, emergent, unfinished Christian. To whom is he trying to appeal? To his credit, what he's trying to do, folks, is he's trying to communicate the gospel to a postmodern world that doesn't believe there is any truth. But if we're not careful, what we do is we trade away, and each one of you is a theologian. Each one of us is a theologian because we speak about the words of God. And when we do this, we must speak it with clarity and simple truth so that people know where we stand. We must be all things to all people by being Christ to all people. We need to take a firm stand. Conduct yourselves, Paul tells the Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or whether I'm absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. My prayer for us as Gamble Street Baptist Church, and if you're listening out there today, is not to go to war with postmodernity, but to challenge relativism. Go into a postmodern world and understand that there's some things that it has done that have been constructive. No, human reason isn't the final answer. Power structures are not the right answer. Can we ever gain full mastery of the whole universe as humans through our intellectual capacities? No. Go into a postmodern world, though, and proclaim the biblical fact that Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. He is the answer. Father, this morning, our prayer is that you will open doors for us to communicate the truth, to generate questions of those around us who will ask us, why do you not only believe the way you do, but why do you live the way you do? And that we will be equipped with a definitive answer that comes through the power of your spirit as you give us the words to say. That we communicate the truth of Jesus Christ. That he can indeed bring them life, teach them the truth, and give them eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.
continue the invitation this morning. I want to speak, yes, to you here at Gamble Street, but I especially want to speak to those of you who are watching. Jesus is very clear. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he loves you. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, you see, there are two ways. There's a wide and there's a broad way. And the broad way is the way of relativism that says there is no truth. I can live however I want. But you see, when we're on the broad way, we come under deep conviction because he has given us a conscience and the spirit convicts us that we're in a way that is not right. This morning, if you are feeling that, whatever it is, Maybe you're a believer and you have burdens that you've been carrying for years. Maybe you've drifted off, even though you're a Christian, toward the way of the broad way. And he's calling you back. Or maybe it is that you're not a believer. And you've never come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The invitation is open this morning for you. He says, he says that broad way leads to destruction. As Koheleth, as the preacher said, there comes a day of accounting. And we will all stand before the Lord. And he will then judge us based on how we have responded to his son, Jesus Christ, and whether or not he will intercede for us and open the door of eternal life for us. And if we're on the broad way when we die, and we've never acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, we will live eternally without him, apart from him. For there are eternal consequences. But he says there is also a narrow way. And the narrow way is to fall, follow him. It's a harder way. It's a one with boundaries. It's one with truth values. It is one with the commandments that he has put into place for your own good and mine. So that you might prosper not only in this life, but that you might have eternal life. Not by ticking off the commandments, but by following Jesus Christ as he helps you to fulfill those as his disciple. Our invitation to you this morning is if you find yourself on the broad way, choose the narrow way. Follow Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Repent. Ask him to forgive your sin. And his shed blood will cleanse you as white as snow. And he will then prepare a place for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.